visualization associated now with Lesson 9. The purpose of this visualization is to put our everyday life in the context of a greater reality and to feel that whatever we're doing is an expression of a greater and more expanded reality. So he says, begin by imagining infinity and feel a light descending. Descending down into ourselves, into our consciousness. And we're sitting still in meditation, but just imagine if we were in any everyday activity, the work that we do, service to our family. See yourself performing those everyday duties. But see this light from infinity coming down into you and expressing itself through your hands, through your eyes, through your actions, as if you were literally nothing but a puppet being moved by that light. And see that in that light all things exist. And wherever we're going, whatever we hope to achieve, thinking now about some greater objective than just everyday work, perhaps a creative project, some long-term goal in life toward which we are taking daily steps, see that in that light the present action and the future result are all one. That even now as we move in that light, we are moving both in present time and in the ultimate success of what we are doing. Feel that in all our actions we are part of this greater reality. that no matter how mundane the task or how exalted, we are never moving except as an expression of that reality. Imagine yourself in the various places that you are during the course of a day, taking care of the various tasks that you take care of. But see yourself, instead of moving on your own power, being moved about by that divine light, never losing connectedness, always acting as an instrument of that greater reality. Where is the line between self and infinity? There is no line. All is one. Swamiji tells us to remember how short life is really and that in all these little actions there is this changeless reality of the infinite light and this body is born, this body grows up, this body dies and always that light is just the same. The clothes that we wear, the actions that we take are just a very thin, like a layer of film over that infinite light.
keep our consciousness in all our thoughts and actions focused on that infinite light behind it all. Offer all that we do back into that light. It comes from the light. It belongs to the light. It is the light. Consciously offer ourselves back into that light. And in this way, we find that even so-called mundane actions are sanctified by the presence of that light. Now please affirm with me. I am an actor in the drama of infinity. I will do my best to fulfill the cosmic plan for my life. I am an actor in the drama of infinity. I will do my best to fulfill the cosmic plan for my life. I am an actor in the drama of infinity. I will do my best to fulfill the cosmic plan for my life. Oh, peace. Amen. Um, this is the second class on Lesson 9 of Swami's uh, Material Success Course, The Importance of Human Values. Um, the affirmation was, I'm an actor in the drama of life, which reminds me of something that I heard Matthew Sloan say yesterday. Matthew is the fourth and fifth grade teacher in our Living Wisdom School, and he's also the author of our school play and the director of the school play. And this is the time of year when our Living Wisdom School puts on this huge production and working, uh, as I have been for the last several years, making costumes. I make the costumes up in the choir loft of the sanctuary, and they rehearse down here. So while I and friends are working up there. We're also watching the whole play, which helps because you see things like, look, that boy is on stage in that scene. (laughs) He doesn't have a costume for that scene. And that's things like that, which are helpful. But Matthew, who's a trained actor and really extremely gifted, both with the children and as an actor, um, I've listened to him teach the children how to do drama. And one of the things he was speaking to them, and these are many young children. This is just pre-K through junior high, so it's not sophisticated. They're young children. But he was asking them one day when they were not really getting into it, he was saying, what is the most important thing about to have as an actor? And they were saying breath, voice, you know, courage, these different things. And finally he said, imagination. And the play that we're doing this year, uh, they're doing, we're doing this year, is uh, on the life of the Dalai Lama. So he says to all the children on the stage, are we in Lhasa? No, we're not in Lhasa. Are we monks and nuns in Tibetan monasteries? No, we're not in Tibetan monasteries. You know, when you look outside, do you see the Himalayas? No, we don't see the Himalayas. He said, but we're acting as if it were true. And so what you have to have as an actor is you have to have a very vivid imagination so that it it is if, he says, we must behave in this room as if we were in Lhasa, looking at the Himalayas and being monks and nuns and Chinese soldiers and all these things we have to be. So that was the first half of it. And then uh, 
the, the couple of days later, he was, you know, not pleased with their performance. He was trying to exhort them to do more, and he was asking them, you know, if your life was threatened, would you behave like that? Is that really how that character would behave? And then he said, the, the secret of acting is to tell the truth in an imaginary world. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Because that is so. It's a, comp- a world of complete imagination, but they have to present reality. You know, that is really how I would feel. That is really how I would respond. This is really what my character would do in those circumstances, even though none of this is real. Because if the, if the actor is not presenting truth, then the whole play falls flat. Now, isn't that just what life is? Because we're, we're living out this peculiar reality where, on one hand, what's really going on is infinity, or let me phrase it differently, where there appears to be all these other things going on. Um, you know, this separate ego, this life, this material struggle, this, all these different things. But there's another complete truth that's happening. And this world is really delusory, if not imaginary. It's not what it seems. And, and our job as devotees is to tell the truth in this imaginary world. In other words, it appear, all these things appear to be so, but our job is to really tell the truth. Now, we don't tell the truth by going around and standing on every street corner and saying, this world is an illusion, repent ye before it dissolves. But we tell the truth about our own inner nature. We act according to who we really are at all times. And this lesson, the, the visualization associated with this lesson, as we were going through, is to see ourselves really as this, there's an infinite light and a ray of it has come out and is moving me. And just thinking about the children being actors, you know, how would I behave if in fact I were just a ray of infinite light? What would I really do? How would I tell the truth about being the ray, a ray of infinite light in this world? Isn't it a fun way to think about it? You know, how would I really behave? Is that how a ray of light would behave? Not really. I mean, Matthew has this huge voice and he's always exhorting the children to do something. Those of you who know him know he's alone in this room and the walls reverberate with his voice. He's just enormous personality. Is that how a ray of light would behave? I can sort of hear his voice in my mind. Isn't it a marvelous thing? You know, one of the great secrets of success on the spiritual path is to find some many light-hearted ways of bringing yourself back to center. In fact, we used to joke that the first thing needed on the spiritual path is devotion and the second is a sense of humor. Because, if, because a sense of humor allows to see it, you to see it in proportion. When I asked Swamiji once about a sense of humor, you know, where does it come from? And he said, well, to a certain extent, it's a spiritual quality because to have a sense of humor, you have to be able to see things from another angle. And also you have to be able to see things in true proportion, which is to not take yourself too seriously, to stand back a little bit. So I like being a child actor, trying to tell the truth about being a ray of light in this imaginary world. I look around, I don't see light everywhere. I look at myself, I don't see a ray of light, but that's who we really are. And this particular lesson is about the yamas and the niyamas, and we started that last week, which are Patanjali's 10 basic rules for right living, which are one of those templates that can be your compass. Whenever you feel yourself out of balance in one way or another, you can go back to any one of those rules. And if you find out where you're off in regard to it and put yourself back on, it will 
always fit. It will always show you. If you're off-center, you've got to be violating one of these rules because otherwise you wouldn't be off-center if you were in harmony with them. But what they help us do is they help tell us how a ray of light would manifest in this world. That's why the first five of the yamas are those negative qualities, qualities that we need to restrain. In other words, the true nature is light, and all we have to do is restrain those elements with, which block the light. So we talked about um, harmlessness, having an, an attitude of harmlessness, and then we talked about telling the truth. Um, one of the things about truth that is really worth mentioning and is an extremely important aspect of this And it's an amazing thing to consider in the context of of talking about the yamas and niyamas in terms of manifestation, which is that words have manifesting power. And the more we always, you know, speak truth and refrain from speaking untruth, and of course you have to have a subtle understanding of that because unkindness is not always true. Bluntness and truth are not always the same thing because harmlessness also has to be taken into account. But the more we keep our word, say what we mean, and do what we say, the more the universe begins to give to our word the, a, a binding power. And if we're trying to manifest in this world and we really want our intentions to take form, and we want to take things from the ether and make them happen in this world, we can't afford to squander that energy. We can't always be saying things and then not really following up with our willpower. Swamiji is very specific about this. Even if you say you're going to do something and then later it it proves unnecessary, he uses as an example, oh, I'm going to go to the store and get a newspaper, and then you discover there's a newspaper here. Well, you've said you were going to the store. You know, you said you were going to the store to get a newspaper. Maybe you don't have to, you know, buy the whole newspaper. Maybe you just have to go and look at the newspaper. But if you declared that this was what you were going to do, you need to be very careful to follow through on that. Because, see, what happens if you don't is that the, the, the power of your own word begins to lose magnetism. Just like it is with people. You know how it is with people who promise things that they don't do, that make statements that are not true. They don't have any magnetism. And also people who habitually do not tell the truth, as Swami puts it here, don't radiate integrity. And if we're talking about... And it's not just a question of whether you catch them in a lie. It's that there's a, a certain... It's almost like their very vibration becomes somewhat... You can feel that there's deception in their vibration. They don't have a straight up quality to them. And if you're really trying to just do business even... You know, people who are sensitive will want to do business with someone who has a vibration of trustworthiness and honor. And don't imagine ever that you can just get away with it because you haven't been caught. You know, all of it registers and it makes us who we are. So it's very important on the spiritual path to be very attentive. Um, In some cultures, like the Indian culture, for example, a lot of the Orient doesn't like to be rude, so they'll often tell you what they think you want to hear. We were, and one of the things they'll say is, oh, I will definitely do it. It's almost a joke, like if an Indian says, I will definitely do it, that means there's not a chance in the world that he will do it. (laughs) We were in uh, uh, in Goa recently with Swamiji, and we were, uh, we were just talking to this Bengali family that was next nearby, and Swami mentioned that he's on Indian television, and 
this man said, oh, I will definitely watch the program. And Swami said, why do you always say definitely when you're never going to do it? I mean, he was just emphatic like that. He sort of just has had it with, with that kind of uh, prevarication, actually. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I made it a practice. Sometimes I'm more attentive to it and sometimes less so of combining truthfulness and harmlessness. I'm not sure if I talked about this last week, but let me say it again. It's like to always tell the truth without ever being unkind. It's a fascinating practice to be completely honest and factual, but not unkind. And it makes the mind so attentive to both factors. You know, you can say things that are really so, but say them in such a way that it doesn't diminish anybody. And when I, when I sort of started realizing that I was too factual and therefore not always kind, I, I challenged myself to see if I could be both. And it's really great fun because it keeps your heart right where you want it to be and it keeps your consciousness right where you want it to be, really paying attention to what you're trying to do and say. Okay. The third of the um, yamas is called non-stealing. And Swamiji sort of says, well, you know, the average person... By the time you're studying these lessons, it's not likely that you're a thief. And he says, besides that, the consequences of actually stealing from other people is usually that you go to jail, so you don't really need a whole bunch of lessons about how to do that or not doing it. Plus that, these rules um, are not external rules. It's not like the Ten Commandments sound a little bit more like you shall do this and you won't do that, you should do this and you won't do that. But what the Yamas and the Niyamas are telling us about is... Um, the inner consciousness that we're supposed to have. So non-stealing sounds too much like a, um, uh, an, an outer rule of behavior that's just about social, social acceptance. So the word he uses instead, which is more accurate, is not to covet. And that's also in the Bible, in the Ten Commandments, but it only speaks about not coveting your brother's wife, which is really also a good idea not to do that. But really what the, the, even the Ten Commandments are trying to talk about is not only right action for social stability and good family relations, but what they're, they're talking about is inwardly um, this constant thought that I need something else, that whatever I have is not sufficient, and even the things I don't have, I want them. Um, I, years ago I heard the radio advisor Sally Jesse Raphael, is that her name? Yes, that's her name. She's a very strong-minded woman. I was driving home once really late at night listening to her program. And somebody called in and asked the question. She's a psychologist, I think, or, or a pseudo-psychologist. I'm not sure what her credentials are. Um, and uh, the man said, why are so many people in America so insecure in themselves? And she answered immediately, because of all the advertising. She said, we are subjected to so much advertising and so many images of a reality that we we should embrace. I mean, just think about it. Advertising, and I, I mean, right now the American economy is not doing so great, and they're trying to get us to get back. I mean, consumer spending is the phrase that they're always talking about. We need to reignite consumer spending. We need to be going out there and getting a lot of things we don't really need. You know, and so we just really need to get back into that sort of endless acquisitiveness that has always characterized us because certainly we must be discontent and need something else. And so there's this constant barrage on us that says whatever you have, whatever you are, it really isn't sufficient. 
You've got to have more. And so the mind in this extraordinary consumer culture just keeps going in all directions. I was just talking to uh, Marilyn uh, earlier today, and she was talking about a realtor friend of hers who can date a house that when the house was built by the size and style of the closets. And she's talked about how the closets in American homes have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger um, for two reasons. One is because of Costco, <laughs> because everything you buy, you buy enough for a small army and you have to have some place to put it. <laughs> and the second thing is just because, well, I mean, when I think of my mother's wardrobe, just as an example, my, you know, our family was not well-to-do, but we were certainly not impoverished. I remember how much space there was between her clothes and her closet. You know, she had a few nice things. She didn't have 15, 20, 30, 40 different outfits. You know, she just wore the same few nice things. And that was just the way it was. But as advertising has increased, as manufacturing has gotten cheaper and all of those different things, there's just this constant sort of restlessness to acquire. You know, teenagers go to the mall. That's what they do. You know, women go shopping. It's like, oh, I just don't have much to do this afternoon. I think I'll go shopping. I mean, I myself have been subject to the same thing. I've recently more or less dropped out, but not for most of my adult life. I like to go. I would say I like to go shopping. My friends would come and visit and we would go shopping. You know? But that, that, I'm just talking in a, somewhat superficial way but it goes much deeper than that it's like I wish I I wish I didn't have this extra weight on my body you know I wish I didn't have these bags under my eyes I wish I were taller than I am you know I wish my body was in proportion like this I wish I didn't have this fault I wish I didn't have to deal with this how many times do we think like that or I want that I want this I wish I was like this I wish I was like that what we're actually doing is we're trying to reach out and get something that isn't ours. Now, that's quite different than dynamically setting out to accomplish something. I'm going to train myself to be an Olympic athlete. I'm going to start a very successful business. I'm going to go to college and learn how to do that. That's applying ourselves to become something. What, what Patanjali is cautioning against is this kind of mental drifting in which we're always reaching out and wanting something that God hasn't given us. And, and making ourselves tired. It just, it's, it's, it's extremely tiring. And it also um, just unimaginably dissipates our energy to just be, be longing for things. And again, when we're trying to manifest, we really need to have all our energy strongly contained. And we talk about this when we talk about brahmacharya too, which is to have self-contained energy. And every place that our energy is desiring something, coveting something that we haven't, that hasn't been given to us by right. This is what he says. Um, it's also, he writes about it, not trying to take credit when credit doesn't belong to us, not trying to diminish others so that we'll feel stronger. Just all these ways in which we're, we're going after things that aren't righteously ours. And he talks about it, the more you show appreciation the more instead of trying to take energy from situations, you try to give energy to situations, always anxious not to have it all come to you, but to give energy out, how much more powerful and magnetic we become in things. It's a very interesting, again, these are incredibly good um, uh, mental exercises 
to just watch the mind during the day and how often it drifts out and sort of wants something. Last night in the discussion group we were having, we talked about, um, I was telling people about something Swamiji said to me once when he was talking about, the question was, how can you tell when karma, when you still have karma around something, karma to work out? Swami gave me this uh, marvelous statement. He said, you can tell when you haven't um, overcome something is if when you contemplate it, you experience either longing or regret. Interesting, isn't that? I mean, that's a kind of uh, stealing, isn't it? It's like the experience has happened, but we want the experience to be other than it was. We're trying to, you know, this is, well, this is what our karma brought us, is a certain, a certain circumstance. But we want that circumstance to be different. Again, that's quite different from saying, all right, by my willpower, by my disciplined action, I will bring this into being. It's just reaching for something that isn't ours, really. And he said, if you you think of anything in your life with longing or with regret, that's what's going to cause you to have to reincarnate again. Because it happened in a certain way, and you think, oh, if only it could be different. And so we come back again. We come back again to see if the ego one more time can make it different. And, you know, just uh, every day I hear stories about how much difficulty people face in life. You know, it's just, you can never ensure that it's going to come out the way you want it to come out. There has to be this inner settledness. And this goes back to acceptance of the truth, really. I was saying that in last week's class, that the real truth that we're trying to tell is the truth about our divine nature. You know, it's not about telling factual truth, it's, the, it's living in the truth of who we really are. And living in the truth of who we really are goes back to the very first lesson of this series, which is the inevitability and the absolute fairness of karmic law. I remember in that sense, I've told some of you the story before, that many years ago, someone got very mad at me for something that I didn't do. They were just persuaded that I had taken this certain action and I hadn't taken that certain action, but I could have. <laughs> and in fact, I had a certain sense that I'd gotten away with it in the past and so I was just, it was just catching up with me now. I was absolutely innocent, but I wasn't really vibrationally innocent. That's all I can say. So I just finally decided the thing to do was just accept it. Just completely absorb and accept the accusation because it was coming to me. And, and it felt like it was part of my reality, that, that I wouldn't be accused of this. In fact, once Swamiji reprimanded David and me for a certain situation, you know, in the context of our position here, he often corrects us over the years for not really handling things right, as we've had to learn. And he, he, he was pretty strong with us. He gave us a pretty strong correction um, for a situation that actually never happened. <laughs> and... Uh, a few days later, after we had just accepted what he said, I, I said to him, I said, Sir, you know, the actual situation was quite different than the way it was reported to you. And he said, Oh, I know, just like that. He said, But the fact that anyone would even say that about you means that you need to think about how you're coming across. I just love that. It was so charming. Oh, I know. <laughs> but vibrationally, the accusation was accurate, you see. The facts were wrong, but, but we didn't do it, but we could have. 
because it was in our aura to have behaved that way. And that's, that's the sort of appreciation of the fact that karma is always fair. Nothing ever comes to us that doesn't belong to us and nothing will come to us that isn't ours. So all of this anxiety about what we do and don't get, the promotion, the relationship, the reward, the money, it's just going to happen the way it's supposed to happen. If we don't like it, that's what this whole course is about, <laughs> how to change our fundamental magnetism so that we will draw something else to it, to us. But deciding to change our fundamental magnetism or, or you know, just go deeper into the spirit so we're living more in the light of God and none of these things are even real to us, is quite a different response. So watch your consciousness. Watch every time it wants things to be, you know, it wants to have or not have something that is not really yours by right. That word covet. It's an absolutely gorgeously awful word and really a a deep one to hold inside. Um, Are there any questions about any of this before I just barrel on to the fourth? Yes, Sahadev. Um, absorbing the lesson. Well, you said something about when Swamiji said something to you, you just decided to absorb it. Yeah, I just decided that he was so definite about it and he was going on a report that was fallacious. But if he was decided to act on it, I thought the only thing to do was to listen very attentively and try to learn what there was to learn. What would be the point of disputing him if he was going to speak to us like that? That's what I meant by it. Absorb it meaning... You know, just soak it in. Don't try to block it. Just hear what hear whatever he's giving us. And I mean that when I was falsely accused, not by him. Also, I just said, well, let me just absorb this. Absorb meaning just let me just take in the facts of this, and you know, let it either teach me or wash through me, whatever is appropriate. But don't don't put up barriers to it. This has come to me. Don't I don't have to block it. Does that make sense? I think it, the word I mean is don't block it. Don't block with egoic defenses, self-justifications, desperate needs to be understood. Just listen. Hmm, isn't this interesting? See where it goes. You know, I think because we did that, I was very relaxed about saying a few days later, well, do you really want to know what happened? And that's why he was so able to say back to me, oh, well, I know that was what, I know what the truth of it was. Because there, because I had just absorbed it. If I'd fought against him, I don't think he would have been so easy with me about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, somebody once said to me very, very powerful advice, and I've loved it. When energy comes to you that you don't want, instead of becoming a shield, become a sieve. Because when energy comes to you that you don't want, when you become a shield, you bounce it back. When you become a sieve, it just goes in you and goes through you. If you bounce it back, it always comes back and you just get this thing going. If somebody's giving you something you don't want, then just become porous. So it reaches you, but then it just sails right through you. And that's a very... I mean, I've used that image a lot when something is coming toward me that I, I don't find... that I wouldn't have chosen. But yet there it is. You know, some uh, just energy, people, whatever it might be. Just be, I, I vis- literally visualize myself as a sieve, and then you're not so vulnerable. Because you're full of holes, it'll just pass right through. It'll blow through you like the wind. Does that make sense? But you know, you can only do that if you are uh, curious about the truth, 
and then we'll come to later, content in yourself and not desiring things to be different than they are, not coveting realities that are not yours. People would not treat you a certain way if there wasn't some karmic reason for them to do so. Everything comes back to lesson one, the absolute fairness of karma. And it's just like it's such a solid cornerstone on which to build your life. You are never treated unfairly. You may be treated unkindly. (laughs) You may be treated all sorts of, you may be treated awfully. But it's never unfair because it wouldn't come to you if it wasn't your karma. And that's not to say you're bad or good. It's just that in the great, you know, tapestry of life, this is how the threads have woven together. Because these are the inevitable threads needed to make the picture. A tapestry is a very fascinating thing if you ever look at them closely. When we were in India this last time, we were looking at, Swami loves to look at Indian rugs. You know, these incredible things with a hundred, with a thousand knots per inch or 500 knots per inch and these, you know, people have sat there for years on these looms weaving these things together. You have the threads going two directions and they gradually, you know, make these extraordinary pictures. And, and it's, you can't really see when two threads intersect where it came from and where it's going. And you can't really see when just those two threads are intersecting what the picture is. But every intersection, and in the case of a rug, it's a knot, but in, in the weave, it's a longer thread. But every intersection is absolutely essential to the forming and the gradual emerging of the whole picture. Just another way to stand back a little and look for the truth behind whatever is happening and not to wish it to be different. Not to covet another reality is the deepest thing. You know, just whatever reality there is, give, give yourself to it joyfully. Don't begrudge other people their moment in the sun. And it says, give each other, give people appreciation. Look for things that are good. Boy other people up. Because who knows where that thread started and where it's going and why it had to cross just like that. It just makes life so much more relaxing. Because otherwise you're just anxiously looking at every single knot, trying to see the whole picture when you can't possibly. It just isn't there. You can only see it when you can stand back and look at the whole thing. All right. The fourth and um, the fourth of the yamas is brahmacharya, which is usually defined as sexual self-control or, or even celibacy, um, which is relevant if you want to be a monk or a nun. But Swamiji points out that these lessons are not for monastics only, and also it means a uh, brahmacharya means more deeply. Um, self-control, and he uses a a better word, which is self-containment. And it's another quality that is not too highly prized in our particular culture. You know, self-containment of words, self-containment of energy, self-containment of magnetism. Anybody who's going to succeed at anything has to have the capacity to hold their energy within and then direct it in the way you want to direct it. I uh, the the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, of course, have just finished, and I caught bits and pieces of it because I always really like watching those people. And you know, just the degree of sacrifice and focus that it takes to rise to that level of dedication. Um, earlier in my life, in my late teens, one of my friends was a world-class athlete, and uh, he never did go to the Olympics. He sort of he he would have he might have even medaled at the Olympics, but he lost interest just before the, the Olympics 
to the everlasting despair of his parents. <laughs> but in any case, but it was, uh, it was really impressive to me um, the degree of focus he had on what he was doing. He worked out, you know, several hours morning and night and everything about his life was um, arranged around what he needed in order to, you know, hone his body for his athletic ability and uh, hone, his, you know, hone himself for the times when he competed. And it was, it was like, it wasn't even like a discipline for him, or, or, or what, what the word I want to use, it wasn't a self-denial. Here Swami uses the word self-control is self-containment, not suppression. It wasn't as if his energy was even trying to go in lots of other directions. It was held in and then directed in this particular way. And as a consequence, you know, he was one of the best in the world at the sport that he was in track and field, and that was the sport that he was interested in. But all his energy was contained, and that's where it went. And lots of different choices, you know, he would often make. And it would just be like, no, of course I can't do that, because it would negatively impact what I'm trying to accomplish. And again, so often we say, I really want this thing to happen, and we visualize it, and we write things on the refrigerator, but we never take our energy and pull it in and direct it toward that objective. You know, if we want to be meditating yogis, we can't also be, you know, party-going drinkers. It just doesn't work. If we just go out and let our energy go, you know, just in all directions and in a very sort of un- undisciplined and um, licentious manner and then expect to sit down and pull the energy up the chakras, I mean, it's just not going to go there. If we're always assaulting ourselves with restless images and restless music and then we sit down and want to meditate, you know, the mind is just going to feed back to us what we've exposed ourselves to. If we overindulge in foods that make the body heavy, you know, it's just, it just won't work. We have to contain the possibilities and then hold the energy in a righteous direction if we spend a lot of time thinking harmful thoughts toward others. You know, if we violate the others, if we, if we always let our minds covet things that aren't ours, These are all lack of brahmacharya. These are lack of self-control. Mental self-control, physical self-control, emotional self-control. It it all becomes of a piece. You know, the desire to be harmful to other people is a lack of self-control, isn't it? It's like, it's knowing that this is a wrong action, knowing that this is not going to bring me what I want, and then not being able to contain our energy. If you think of that word as containment, you think how often when we make an error... It's just, I couldn't contain my energy. I couldn't help myself. Now, it's very important, and he says it again, self-containment is not suppression. Suppression is, is having this great fear of that energy. And sometimes yogis actually do fall into that, become so anxious about appearing good and doing the right thing and feeling that every impulse I have might be wrong, that we become so self-censoring that there's really no energy to contain because all the energy is suppressed. I mean, you'll see people, and if, you, if you're sensitive looking, you see their bodies are tight, voices are tight, their movements are tight. You know, they, they, don't have, they can't participate in life because everything is suppressed. That's not the same as being self-contained. Self-contained is when the energy can flow free, freely, but one chooses to direct it in a certain way. 
And Swami made an interesting comment. He said, it's far better to be over-emotional. It's far better to be a little out of control than to be suppressed. Because if we're suppressed, we haven't even begun to deal with whatever karmic inclinations are in us. If the inclinations are merely out of control and we're doing our best to gradually focus them in according to the yamas and the niyamas, then at least we're a project in motion. If it's just suppressed, it won't ever go away. It'll just wait for us to have the courage eventually to face it and deal with it. Um, that's why sometimes on the spiritual path, I, I've said to people that, you know, that the goal of the spiritual path is not to be nice. Just being nice it does not make you a spiritual person. What you want to be is free, free of compulsion. And that's very, very different. Sometimes people will, will hold their energy in, but it's not really self-contained. It's trapped in fears or anxieties or guilt or all kinds of things. That's not freedom. You don't even own it yet. Sometimes on the spiritual path, a person will sort of hear, oh, I can just give everything to God. And they'll, they'll try to give it all to God. But if it's suppressed, you don't even own it yet. You, you're giving away what you don't own. It's not yours yet. You have, to, you have to actually know what the dynamics of your own karmic tendencies are, of your own personality, of your own likes and dislikes and all your desires. And then, by self-discipline, consciously choose to contain those energies and direct them. Then you can give yourself to God. Otherwise, and, and it doesn't ever work anyway, so it's not really a problem. Sooner or later, it blows up on you. But you'll see people who are trying to like circumvent having to face whatever, whoever they are. And they'll just pretend that I've surrendered it all to God when in fact I don't even own it yet to surrender. Do you understand? But once we have that dynamic capacity, then we have to really learn to discipline ourselves. And that's why, you know, lots of little disciplines are useful, but non-covetousness is one of them, harmlessness is one of them, truth is one of them, in which we contain our energy by actual literal practice. Often people will just think of this in physical terms, become, you know, very strict about their diet, raw foods, no sugar, things like that, and very pious about these sorts of things. But uh, that's just so peripheral. I mean, it doesn't hurt. It's, sometimes it's a good practice. You know, every year at Lent to give up something that you normally like to have. But uh, the really deep reality is covetousness, non-truthfulness, harm, uh, harmlessness. That's the real self-containment. The impulse of the ego to try to gain dominance by, by wrong methods. That's what we're trying to contain. The fifth and last of the yamas is, um, it's called non-greed, is how Swami calls it. Sometimes it's defined as non-acceptance of gifts. But as Swamiji says, this is such a sort of confusing and peripheral rule. And some yogis do follow that rule. They never accept anything. But Swami says, God lavishes gifts upon us and we accept them gratefully. And we honor people by giving them gifts. That's not what it means. He's correcting something. But even more than non-greed, Swamiji says the true meaning of this is um, non-attachment. He said non-covetousness, this is how he explains it, non-covetousness is not desiring something that isn't yours by right. 
Um, and this one, non-attachment, means even the things that are actually yours, you don't identify with them or, or um, define yourself by whether or not you have them. Non-attachment is a very tricky one because people tend to use it to mean a little bit of cold-heartedness. Swamiji once made a comment that a certain person, as the way Swami put it, you know, he pretended a certain distance from things in order to cover a kind of inward attachment. Swami said about himself that, that being genuinely non-attached, you don't, have to, you don't have to behave any particular way. You can enjoy and embrace everything because, in fact, you can walk away from it at any point. You know, Swamiji lives in this enormous world of people and things and so on, and it, it, it's so amazing to see how free his consciousness is. You know, wherever he is, whatever it is, the, what, what he's saying here, the, I like the phrase he uses it, we must refuse to accept anything as really belonging to us, spiritually speaking. And that goes with whatever we accomplish, whatever talents we have, whatever experiences God gives us, um, even our own physical bodies. The perfection of this quality, interestingly, Patanjali says, when you're perfectly non-attached, you can remember your past lives which is a very interesting sort of hint about what this really means. Because one of the reasons we can't remember our past lives is because we're so involved in this one that the experience of this one comes to the forefront and all the others recede. And that's because we have this body and we think of it as ours. And we are attached to it in a certain way. We have all these personalities and these relationships and we've allowed ourselves to become engaged in them. And, you know, just... I mean, a number of friends recently, in the course of the years that I've lived, you know, I've had the experience of friends who've died suddenly. You know, one man went out running. He said goodbye to his wife. He went out running. He was a few blocks from home. He said, I don't feel very well. He sat down and he died, just like that, into the astral world. Another man just got up in the night, walked from his bedroom into the bathroom, and when he stepped from his bedroom into the bathroom, he stepped into the astral world, just like that. You know, it's like we never really know whether ourselves or our loved ones, you know, I'm not talking about tragic accidents, although they do happen. You know, people are hit by cars or the heart stops. Things happen. And the more we have defined ourselves by what's going on right now, the more when those transition comes, we can't live in the now anymore. We, we covet something that isn't ours at that point. And, and, what, and more than just not coveting what isn't ours, we have to see even that which appears to be mine is just a passing reality. And, and I can't move out from my center and try to hold on to it. And Swamiji says, ironically, you know, perfect non-attachment is when you know, everything just comes to you because you're in the flow of energy. And it's not, um, the more detached you are, the more superconsciously you can make decisions, the more intu- intuition you have. One of the things that blocks our intuition above all is the likes and dislikes of the heart. When I had that experience that i written about in my book about Swamiji, where I was having such a hard time in my own mind understanding God's will, and Swamiji was just very dismissive of me. It's very easy to know what God wants of you. He said, just like that. And I was just struggling so hard to understand And I realized it was very simple because I had such deep attachments to certain things being a certain way 
that I couldn't even entertain the idea that the divine might have a different plan for me. So I dealt with it by being confused, just pretending to be confused, because as long as I was confused, I could act like I wanted to know, but I didn't really want to know. And you know, it's just, we can't, we can't see the truth if we're blocked, because reason always follows feeling. If you have a prejudice in a certain direction, you will find all the reasons in the world to support it. That's why intelligent people can become Nazis. You know, you think, how can bright, educated, refined people? Well, there was a prejudice of the heart going that way. Prejudice to have a scapegoat, or prejudice to have a certain position, or prejudice not to buck the trend, whatever it was. There was an attachment in the heart that blinded people to the truth. And the worst attachment we have is the attachment to the ego that blinds ourselves to the truth of God's presence within us. Now, you can't be non-attached by being indifferent. It's not the same thing. It's what people try to do. They try to say, oh, I'm non-attached. We're saying, well, I don't care. You know, what difference does it make? You know, my wife left me. What difference does it make? You know, I'm non-attached. I, I laughed when I first got married to David. You know, we were um, young and, you know, passionately attached to each other. They were just, it would be foolish to say otherwise. And shortly after we were married, he went on a trip to go somewhere, and he was gone about three weeks, which seemed a really long time to me at that point. I just was very, I was pining very much for him to come back, and I was so eager for him to come home, and someone said to me something like, now don't get attached like that. And I said, for heaven's sakes, if I wasn't attached, do you think I would have married him? Get real. You know, don't be absurd. It's not like you can get over attachment by, by being distant, and I mean, I looked at that situation very seriously because I was a serious yogi before I married him, and so was he. But it was impossible not to, not to feel an involvement from the heart. Really, if I hadn't, I wouldn't have married him. Why would I have bothered? There had to be some energy like that. But the, the, the non-attachment came by going through that, by realizing that there's no reason to withhold your heart. You can give your whole heart to everything, but you're not really giving it in a personal way. I mean, I had a, a, a certain crisis with David that was a crisis entirely of my own making. But it was a crisis of uh, emotional vulnerability where I fantasized, I projected upon him certain, in, certain callous actions that he actually wasn't doing anything. I just totally created it out of complete feminine imagination. And he, poor lad, was just going about his business and then I'm suddenly unhinged and he didn't have a clue because he wasn't involved. It was just my own story. But at the end of it, I became quite concerned because I just wasn't keen on a life in which such things would happen. It seemed like a really bad idea to be involved in a situation like that, but there I was. It was too late. So I, I began to realize that you can't, you can't withhold your heart Because God loves us wholeheartedly, unconditionally. It's not divine to be a little cold or to be a little afraid or a little, well, in the name of being unattached, I'm really, you know, not really going to relate. You see people like that. It's not at all attractive, is it? There's just something quite off-putting. But I also couldn't, like, put all the eggs of my happiness in the basket of this one individual. Even such a fine man, you know, 30 years later, my faith in him was quite justified. He turned out to be exactly who I thought he was. 
And so he's a wonderful person. It's not about that. But I put all my eggs in the basket of his reality and he goes about his business and I'm, you know, desperately stretching out trying to cling to his coattails. And I realize it's God you give your heart to. And what I mean by that is through what's been given to you, through who's been given to you. But it's not the person that you trust. It's God that you trust. The only attachment is to the divine. The only attachment is to acting appropriately to the circumstances you find yourself in. And the appropriate thing when, you have, when you're married, when you have children, is to be, you know, divinely loving to that person. That's what's expected of you. You have a certain responsibility. You've made certain promises. And you have to keep those. But what you're really promising is to be faithful to the truth. And what you're really trusting is that God has brought me here and God will take care of me. And if God takes care of me by having all these individuals stay in the places that I want them to stay and turn out to be the people that I hope they are, well, that's nice. But if what God actually gives me is to say, oh, you misguided on that one and you are not quite right here and this one has its own karma and that one's going to be different and these children that you've raised so lovingly never call you anymore, you know, all of that. But it's God that you've trusted. God, you gave this to me to do and if this is how it happens, this is how it happens. You live in the truth. You don't covet that which is not yours. And then you have nothing to fear because divine is always with you. I had a a really powerful experience of that when we were working on making Ananda Village into a California city, which was really one of the more bizarre projects that I've ever been involved in because it was like a 500-acre farm and we tried to turn it into a California city because legally it was possible to do such a thing. Legally it was possible. It didn't actually happen for various reasons. But I spent 18 months of 24-hour-a-day concentration on it and it was a huge tempest in a teapot in the little county of Nevada where we lived in California. And in the end, the whole thing just in a huge, big public meeting was denied. And, and then uh, we were going to go forward still from that point. And then Swami had the intuition that we should stop. And the, without going into all the details, I had this tremendous force going forward. And Swami said, no, I think we should not do this anymore. And it just went... Like that. I mean, there was no, like, interlude. It was just a 100% commitment, and then nothing. And just suddenly it had stopped, and it had stopped in such a way that I couldn't question it, because Swamiji felt strongly that we should stop. And it was so fascinating to me, because I got to watch, you know, what am I really attached to? What am I committed to? Am I, am I really committed to this project? Or am I committed to doing what Swamiji above all, but I began to understand his point of view too, am I committed to doing the right thing? And it was actually, I was so, oh, I have to say, proud of myself because I just dropped it. Just, just didn't matter to me. I was doing it because it was right and I was attached to doing what was right. And at the point at which it wasn't right anymore, well then who cares? And but I, I was still attached though a little bit. It had been a very adversarial situation and I remained attached to them losing. <laughs> I was very annoyed that they won, the adversaries. And I held on to that for a little while. I didn't mind losing myself, but I didn't like that they won. And then I actually got very sick. I got a very high fever, which is very unusual. And I was really sick for about five days. And when I got it from the fever, I really didn't care who won or lost. But it was also an extremely instructive lesson. 
Because during the time I was doing it, I was, you know, as committed as I can be, and I have a lot of energy. And I just did everything I could to make it a success. But what I was attached to was doing what I felt God wanted me to do as I understood that. And if that's your commitment, you see, it doesn't really make any difference what happens in this world. And sometimes he makes this real abundantly clear, doesn't he? Because he just changes things. He either gives or he takes away. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. All of a sudden you have, all of a sudden you don't have. And then you get to find out, what was I really attached to? And the more you just define your only attachment is to that inner flow of grace, you see how free you are in this world? And, and then, as I was saying, it's not about being nice, it's about being free. It's about not being compelled by any other energy except the divine light. All right? Would you like to take a break? Okay, let's take a short break. And then we'll finish these so we don't have to do this lesson again. Fun. Okay, great souls, are we ready to do it? We have five niyamas to get through. The yamas. Not, yamas are the things that you restrain. The niyamas are the things that you don't restrain. You, you restrain the negative qualities. Am I, yeah, you restrain the negative qualities so that the positive qualities can be unrestrained. That's how it works. I always get a little mixed up about how the vocabulary is. Yeah, it's all backwards from the way we're thinking, but that's the way it is. So we've gone through the yamas, which were, you know, which we said them. I can read them off again. Um, ahimsa, which is harmlessness, and truth-telling, or restraining untruthfulness, non-covetousness, brahmacharya, which is self-control, and non-greed, which is, translates into non-attachment. And then the niyamas, which are the qualities that will emerge from us as soon as we restrain the negative, are cleanliness, contentment, the pasya, which means austerity, swadaya, self-study, and devotion to the Supreme Lord. I always love that. You work through from one and finally the tenth one you get to is devotion to the Supreme Lord. Cleanliness is not only talking about um, washing your hands and rituals like that. It's really talking about purity of heart. And purity of heart is such an interesting thing because once we restrain those qualities which corrupt our inner nature, then purity is what's left. Once we stop being attached, when we stop you know, wishing harm to others, when we stop coveting things that are, don't really belong to us, then what we come back to is our innate purity. And understanding this purity is not the purity of a child, where you know they seem so pure simply because their egos haven't really got a solid grip on them yet. They're having their little hiatus of uh, between birth and when the ego really gets a hold of you. That's why all those darling little children just turn into something else when they grow up, <laughs> because you know the ego is incipient or a little bit behind the scenes, and then it gets a grip later, and then they turn into who they're really going to be. But the purity of heart is when the qualities, the perfect expression of the yamas, it just becomes our natural expression. Why would I be attached? Because the divine is within me. I am God's child and everything in the universe belongs equally to him and therefore to me. You know, why would I wish harm to anyone? I know that all beings are my brothers and sisters in creation. And so it becomes a natural expression of who we really are. 
He also, you know, even... Um, it's a certain guilelessness. It's a, it, and, and, and see how these all come together. You know, when you always tell the truth, there's a certain purity about your nature because you're not working from some... The phrase Swami uses is ulterior motive. And in the context of these qualities in terms of um, manifesting what you want, um, if, you're, if you're trying to simply manifest material success and interaction with the world if you really are what you appear to be, in other words, if you're, if you're pure in heart and not trying to use people and not really hoping that they'll do something for you without really giving them a fair return, if you pretend to be their friends when you really only have self-interest, all of these things gradually make you less magnetic as a person. And magnetism, as we've talked about in earlier lessons, the force that we put out is really what draws our karma to us. And ultimately, this purity of heart is, as Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we can work on this. Cleanliness also really has its external meaning. And it goes with non-attachment and other things like that, which is cleanliness is also being uncluttered in our reality, not cluttering up our life with all these extra things, not allowing... um, uh, a kind of disorder to set in. You know, there's a, a great power to just um, um, keeping things uh, not not tamasic. And when, years ago at Ananda Village, this Swami Chidananda came and visited us. And at that time, things were just kind of messy at Ananda Village. We still called it the farm. And, and there was just a lot of disorder around. And he came and he said, you really should clean this up because lower astral entities like these kinds of disorderly environments. And in, and in a disorderly environment, they find a, 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 a um, compatible vibration. And so he really said, you need to clear out all this clutter and clear out all this debris and keep things clean. It's a really, it's a really important quality because that's the, that's the quality of higher vibrations. I often looked in my own life sometimes and when things are not going well or I'm feeling not so well, I'll look around and I'll see there's a lot of disorder in my house. And I'll just clear out my house. When we moved about three years ago from one place to another, just a few hundred yards, we'd been in one place for like 19 years, I just threw away everything I could possibly throw away. Everything that that I didn't actually really have a use for, I discarded. Because I just didn't want all that stuff in my life. Just moved it aside. And it just, such a tremendous sense of freedom. And pretty much, even after three years, I'm pretty much still there. Because I'm pretty strong about it. There's only a few places in the house. But it's so much fun because I know, I know everything that's in that house and I know where it is. You know, I don't have these dark sort of unknown corners where I'm, I don't even remember what's in there. Or, or I can't find something. Just I know where everything is, and I know what's in there, and I know why it's in there, and it just creates a certain freedom of heart, really. And it's the same, of course, on a much deeper level as what we're talking about. But you can approach these things from all angles, and no harm in doing it in the most obvious way. The second of the yamas, the niyamas, the quality which will naturally flow from us once we stop interrupting it, is contentment. Santosha, it's called. And contentment is um, a supreme virtue, he says, because it's 
It's akin to non-attachment. That's how he puts it. And contentment is something that you can practice deliberately. And, and it matches non, non-attachment and non-covetousness. If we're content within ourselves... Now, contentment does not mean to be unambitious or to be passive. Sometimes people think, well, if I'm content, I'm not doing anything. No, of course, you can be very, very dynamic and moving forward, but you can move forward out of an inner anxiety or you can move forward out of the sheer joy of, of moving and uh, being creative and doing what God wants you to do. But if we're inwardly content with reality as it is, we're telling the truth and we're not inclined to be covetous, uh, but what we, are, we are satisfied with the way, way life is treating us. Um, again, it goes right back to that first one. If this is my actual cont- karma, I'm content with it. I'm not fighting all the time against reality. This is, I'm cultivating this divine peace with the way things are. Um, I accept reality as it is. And then I, Swami Kriyananda often jokes at, by looking at things that he has no influence over. Oh, that, you know, the design of that new car is very attractive. And then he'll say very, you know, as if speaking from the mountaintops, I approve like this, you know. The universe couldn't care less whether he approves or doesn't approve. And it's just making fun of an attitude we tend to have. You know, a lot of times people resent very fundamental conditions of life. You know, the way this particular planet is constituted, for example, money is a really big struggle for a lot of us. You know, we, we never quite have enough. Work is not always congenial. There's just a lot of conditions about life that, that frustrate us and make us discontent. We want it to be different. In the festival of light, when we're using the little analogy of the bird going through its, its, its day and finally its realization, which is representing our many incarnations, there's a point at which, the, which conditions are a certain way and the bird enters the second stage of its long journey, which is called the revolt. God has created the universe in a certain way and I'm going to declare that I don't like it. I don't want it to be like this. And a lot of times people are very discontent about the way God made this world. You know, I don't like it this way. And it's not a, a reality that we can change. You know, I want it to be different. I just want it to be different. People want to be, how do you say it? They want to be, um, they want to be well, but they don't want to do the work necessary to be healed. You know, just want it to be different. And that's the discontent. Content is saying, all right, these are the circumstances. These are the conditions in which I have to operate. And I'm not going to rebel against those. I'm not going to be in revolt. I, I deliberately accept, I deliberately practice contentment with conditions as they are. Now that may mean that conditions as they are means I'm going to have to work really hard every day in order to keep a roof over my head or to accomplish this or to take care of my family or to deal with whatever's troubling me. But I'm content with that fact. Do you see the difference? You're not passive. But if you're discontent with the way things are, so often I realize when I'm talking to people, what they're asking for is is something that will never exist. I I used to call it when I did a lot more counseling, the desperate search. Oftentimes circumstances are such that you either have to do this or you have to do this. You're basically trapped in a room and there's two doors. 
or maybe there's four doors, but let's just say there's two. You have to go out this door and there'll be certain consequences. You go out this door, there's certain consequences. But the individual spends all their time throwing themselves against the wall behind them, trying to get out of the room by a brick wall. There's no door in that direction. It's like the desperate longing, what I call for the mythical third alternative. It just isn't there. I remember when I was in a very difficult a situation and I had to face a great disappointment. I was just emotionally quite distraught about it. This was many years ago until I finally realized that I was trying to insist that the universe give me something that just simply didn't exist. There was just no way that, that people were going to behave the way I wanted them to behave. It was over. It was finished. It, it was in the past. It was not in the future. And I just sort of, that day, I just realized, look, you have to just go through that door. You just can't sit here and throw yourself against this brick wall. There is no opening back here. And the lack of contentment with, with reality as it is causes us always to be on edge. You know, I want to have a business that's very successful, but, you know, I want to have a lot of free time. Um, I want to make a lot of money, but I don't, I don't really want to work that much. You know, I need, I need time for my hobbies. Well, you know... This is not the way it works. When I first married David, he had a reputation, which he still has, but he especially had it then, for being able to be very successful. And not, not surprisingly, I realized he was successful because he worked about three times as much as I did. You know, like there was no mystery to his success. It was that he put out so much more energy than I put out. I mean, I actually called it, you know, he had a night shift. I would go to bed and he would do a night shift, in essence, you know. He just would put out a lot of energy. And the consequence was that he was able to make things happen. I mean, he really, he raised my energy level a lot. And he worked a lot smarter than I did, too. I put out a lot of energy, but a lot of it was chicken with your head cut off kind of energy. You know, just running around in mad circles and then being exhausted at the end. He, he worked hard and he also worked smart. And I, unfortunately, I see a lot of people who want the results without the action and they're discontented with the, with the steps in the middle. We talked about that earlier in this, in this class series about not only visualizing the goal but being just as enthusiastic about every step you have to take to get there. That's contentment in a very interesting sense. And in terms of manifesting, it's vital. The, the third of the um, niyamas is tapasya, which I love. We used to joke... Tapasya means austerity. You know, tapasya is not eating chocolate for the rest of your life. Tapasya is living on three grapes and two raisins, you know. Tapasya is, you know, living in a cold cave and meditating 20 hours a day. You know, everything that seems austere and difficult, it's also defined as austerity. When Swami Kriyananda was giving out spiritual names, you always lived in fear that he would call you Tapasyananda or something like that. <laughs> you know, nobody wanted a name that was related to Tapasya. It was very scary. <laughs> it was the joke. But uh, then once we were watching a Hindi movie, I say we, this was the whole community when the community was about 50 people about 25, 40 years ago. Um, we were watching this Hindi movie and it had, uh, none of us spoke Hindi, so it had English subtitles. And we knew uh, random Sanskrit words because they, they came into our vocabulary from our yogic practices. And some character on the stage said, tapasya, with a great, like this. And the subtitle said, devotion. And we all just laughed. We thought that was such a crazy mistranslation. We laughed and laughed. 
And then afterwards, he didn't correct us in the middle of the movie, but Swamiji said that's an exact translation of the word tapasya, which really just took our minds and turned them around. Because austerity and devotion is the same thing. Because you think of austerity as something that's, you know, that's painful, that you don't want to do, but you force yourself to do. You think of devotion as something that you do out of love. But they're the same word. If you're acting properly, because suppression is not the same as transcendence. So if you really contain your energy, brahmacharya, and you decide this is really what I want to do, and as a consequence you, you, you restrain yourself from doing a lot of other things, are you really denying or are you gaining? When my friend who was so devoted to his athletic career refused to do certain things out of devotion to the goal that he had set, his, his de- definition of what he was doing was not what he wasn't getting, it was where he was going. And that was what he was devoted to. So when an individual decides that, you know, my life is for God, I'm not going to just let my energy dissipate in all these ways. Other people may look at that as tapasya. But inwardly, if you're doing it correctly, it doesn't feel like tapasya. It's what I do because out of love. I do it out of love for where I'm going. And what I leave behind is no loss. In uh, Autobiography of a Yogi, the levitating saint Baduri Mahashaya was very wealthy and he renounced his inheritance and his wealth in order to become a yogi. And, and someone, maybe it was Master himself, who says in the autobiography, says to him, I understand you gave up great wealth, you know, to follow the spiritual path. And he says, a handful of rupees for an infinity of bliss. You know, where is the sacrifice in that? And so when we come to tapasya, you have to realize that that's, that's the way to approach it. Somebody once asked Swamiji, how much discipline is enough discipline? And he said, that, that which you can do with joy. He said, if you're, not, if you're not feeling joy in that effort, he said, back off a little, is how he put it. Now, joy is not the same as ease. It's not the same as pleasure. It's not the same as drifting off into subconsciousness. Joy is that deep satisfaction of knowing that you're on the right path doing the right thing. You know, whenever we're, we do the right thing, even if it takes effort, you know, I'm, I'm talking about doing these costumes for the children, and this year hasn't been such a, what I call kamikaze karma yoga, as it has been in previous years, where it's just been this all-out effort that just really just consumed me. But it's still, it's, it's, a, it's a sufficiently large project to put 60 children into costumes, you know, small, wiggly children into costumes and keep them there and not have them destroy the costumes. There's always a point in this children's play where it crosses your mind that everything would go better if there weren't any children involved. (laughs) That's the point at which you take an afternoon off. (laughs) But, uh, But it's just so gratifying. You know, the effort is so gratifying. So you lose a little sleep, so you don't get to do as many things as you wanted to do. There's no sense of tapasya to it. I mean, austerity in that sense. It's just the sense of, isn't it fun to be able to focus your energy like this? And that's what tapasya is. It's really an absolutely glorious devotion. And then comes what they call swadaya, which is self-understanding, self-awareness. Sometimes it's translated as study of the scriptures, but that's not really it. 
It's not even the study of the self, as Swami says, in the sense of introspection. It's actually being um, aware of oneself, to be able, you know, it all... Again, this is a niyama, which is to say, this is what you will naturally experience when we stop blocking that natural experience. So that's how you have to think about it. We will suddenly become aware of who and what we really are. When we stop telling untruths, when we start trying to use the ego to have power over others, you know, when we um, stop uh, being discontent with circumstances as we are, then we will become aware of the truth within us. And that's always, it's a very good, you can practice it deliberately, like, who am I? What am I doing? You know, where am I going? Why am I behaving this way? What are my true goals? And it's introspection in its uh, most fundamental form, but it rises beyond that so that you're not merely reflecting about, uh, cogitating about yourself, but you're actually perceiving yourself. You know, this is the um, art of meditation where you can go into a state of meditation and you just realize that you know, things are not what they seem. I have this whole other dimension to my nature and begins to put us into that superconscious relationship. And once we stop blocking that, that's what naturally flows. Now, earlier in these lessons, in terms of manifestation, we talked about intuition, superconscious energy, being in t- attuned to the flow. We also talked about concentration, directing energy. And you see how all these yamas and niyamas, as, as attitudes and right behaviors, are the foundation stone that makes those things possible. What are the obstacles to our being able to put out that energy, to being able to concentrate like that? Well, it's everything that we've been talking about. Okay? Now the last one is devotion to the Supreme Lord. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? I love that phrase. As I said, I always feel like we've crossed the finish line when you go through these ten qualities. Because that's just the final understanding that really there's nothing going on except this love relationship. And even all of our mundane business practices, um, the effort to make money, to have our relationships, everything, it, all of it is just an act of love and devotion to this infinite power which made us and is always with us. The meditation that goes with this um, particular lesson is just so beautiful. I love that picture. You imagine this infinity of light And you see one little tiny ray that's just come down to be me, you know? And it's it's just like there's so many, we have so many beautiful animated cartoons and movies these days which take all these images and so we have all these pictures in our mind. And then I just, you just sort of feel yourself like being run like a little puppet. I mean, it's a very childlike image, but it's a very nice one where you're just this little beam of light that's just being moved around. And the relationship to life is, an, is, is primarily upward first. Upward to that divine force, which is our true nature. And all of our devotion is first to that. And then th- from that devotion, everything else flows. Because we love God, we love everyone. Because everyone else is also a manifestation in that same way. In the same way that we see the little beam of light moving us around, we look at everybody else and they're all moving around too. And some of them are more clouded, in their actions. and Sometimes their cloudiness causes them to strike out at us. But you know, when light, hit light hits light, what difference does it make? Because our devotion is first to the Supreme Lord. 
It's not to my ego. It's not to this desire. It's not to this thing that I have to have. It's just, that's the only reality there is. And once we stop blocking that, we realize that's all we've ever longed for anyway. Great bliss, great bliss. All right. So we graduate from lesson 10. Nine, we get to lesson 10. Okay. So, see you next week then.